and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 61. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's trifecta time again, and you know what that means. Three weird, super short stories by three different, super weird authors. And to make things even more interesting this time, we've got three different narrators, too. So we should jump right into it, because we've got a lot of peculiarity to throw at you. Our first story is called Kisses by Tobias S. Bakel. Mr. Bakel is a Caribbean-born, speculative fiction writer who grew up in Grenada, the British Virgin Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. He's published stories in various magazines and anthologies, and has had two novels out by Tor Books, Crystal Rain and Ragamuffin. He's a Clarion graduate, Writers of the Future winner, Nebula nominee, and Campbell Award for Best New Science Fiction Writer finalist, and this story is guaranteed to creep the hell out of you or your money back. It's narrated for us by Rick Stringer, the voice behind Variant Frequencies, which is a great monthly podcast of original fiction, usually dark and twilight zony. I've been a subscriber for a while. It really is worth checking out. I'd recommend Matt Wallace's No World for Warriors as a great place to start. It won the Parsec Award last year for Best Speculative Fiction Story in Short Form. All right then, off we go. Kisses by Tobias S. Buckel Richard dreams of a gorgeous woman. She is sketched out like those figures on black and white posters. A few long, fluid lines that suggest so much more than points in space. But the full body of a woman. When her hand brushes his skin, it is a faint gesture. He shivers. She often whispers things in his ear. And they tickle his earlobes. In his half-awake dreams, he makes love to the lines of this woman. Richard wakes up with a snort. He's been snoring again. The apartment's clammy air pushes against his chest. The windows are closed. It's raining outside, pattering steadily against the dust-streaked panes. He swings his legs over the side of the bed and they hang in the air for a second. Cordelia murmurs something and shifts. Her pale, flabby thighs stick out from under the rolled-up blanket. She's drooling on the pillow. When Richard stands up, his feet smush something. Christ. He looks down at the mahogany-colored crunched cockroach. Making a face, he drags his heel on the carpet to wipe it off. The living room looms up at him, lit by the rain-dappled street lamps through the windows. Half-empty beer cans line the coffee table. A broken leg propped up by a never-used encyclopedia, X through Y. Richard runs the calcium-crusted tap, waving his hand underneath and waiting for the water to turn cold. He opens a bottle of aspirin and rummages for a glass. They're all piled in the sink, dirty, so he cups his hands underneath. The water drains through his fingers as he lifts them up. He's left with a half a swallow, just enough to wash a pair of pills down. The floor creaks when he steps back into the room. He pauses to push up a sheet of wallpaper, 
and pin it back onto the wall. The pin doesn't stick. Richard pushes until his thumb breaks through the rotted sidewall. He stares at the hole for a second, then shakes his head. Cordelia turns the other way when he stumbles back into the bed. Richard tries to reclaim part of the blanket, then gives up. Richard stares at the large water stain on the ceiling, the brown edges and water drops getting ready to fall into the bucket sitting around the room. Sleep steals slowly over him again. He waits for the woman to reappear. And soon she does, brushing his hands and kissing his palm. Richard blinks his eyes and sees the water stain again. He can hear the soft skittering of thousands of tiny legs in the walls. As his head lulls to the side, the brown floor stirs and retreats back into the wall. The headache that woke him throbs. His mouth is full of cotton. Richard falls back asleep anyway. The brown-eyed woman carefully reaches him again, kisses his fingers, and runs her hands up his arm. She nibbles his earlobes. They kiss his whole body and make love. Our next story may be the weirdest piece of fiction we've ever had on the Drabblecast. It's a tale about not fitting in and struggling to find a context in life, and it's called Warmth of the Sun by Sean Ruane. Sean writes in a graduate program at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, which serendipitously is about two blocks from my apartment. I've never actually met Sean, but the coincidence is nice because it means we can just pay him in beer at the local pub some weekend. He's been published most recently in Thieves' Jargon, Johnny America, Sign und Verden, and Hakale, and he has work forthcoming in 3AM Magazine and Wandering Army. The story is read to us by someone who's got a whole podcast about not fitting in and struggling with the oddities of life, Anthony Elmore of the Diabetic and Candyland podcast. This is a podcast that features stories by losers about losing. It's not as depressing as it sounds. In fact, it's more about learning to laugh at yourself than anything. I'm a fan. So, here we go. Warmth of the Sun by Sean Ruane The sun's rays feel a little warmer, the flowers more redolent of spring, lumbago sufferers turn cartwheels into town square, and the professional ladies need not cling white knuckle to their dignity. Not today, this day of days. Owls and bees gather at the square to feed from the palm of his hand. Both lay down their differences when bologna sandwiches are served. His eyes are draped by less oppressive lids and his pulse quickens at the thought of bologna sandwiches in the square. This is a golden day, a day made of gold. Ferdinand and Isabella sent Columbus out to gather days like these for the glory of Spain. Instead, he brought back Indians and corn. They told Columbus to go back and bring something like tobacco because they couldn't smoke corn, at least not the recalcitrant cobs he brought them. I will look for this. This tobacco, he said with a Spanish accent. I will trade them for syphilis, for hogshead of tobacco, a disease for a bad habit, and for vice. Columbus found a flotilla of tobacco just sitting in a bright harbor at Hispaniola, and he hitched his ship to it. 
Owls and bees flocked to him, this bringer of new-fashioned smokables, and they partook of his basket full of smoke. Columbus stood at the deck of the Santa Maria, bedizened with owls and bees, like a nautical Francis of Assisi, and chewed tobacco leaves. He wore a beard of owls, indeed before it was all fashionable, and perched bees upon his shoulder where he plied them with pemmican, tobacco, and song. After a time, Columbus dismissed his flock and returned to captaining his ship. Being too far from shore, the bees and owls drowned. Bees and owls will not drown today. Carnal ladies will not have their esteem torn asunder, and he will only bother the mailman today, this day of days. The pressure of society cannot reach him here. That unwanted finger tap on the base of his skull that seems to ask, Still here, are you? His voice was raspy when he called out from work this morning, telling them it was his old stigmata acting up again. One day he will look into what a stigmata really is. For now, it's his trump card for getting out of work. He simply says, stigmata, and they say, Shit, hope you feel better soon. End of story. Today, the world will be better off without his bumbling attempts of fitting in and making communion with it. Making bologna sandwiches for a parliament of owls or a gaggle of bees is all the socializing his flaccid psyche can handle. Though he feels self-conscious handing them out, still avoids direct eye contact with the owls whom he believes are secretly judging him with their piercing gaze and judgmental hoots. The bees are stoic both before the sandwiches and directly afterward. Mick hopes that at some point in their day, they look back on the sandwich and its distributor and have what could be at least remotely be construed as a warm feeling, acceptance. To be accepted by bees would be a good start. However, acceptance by bees would be ancillary to the main purpose of providing a context, a reason for the incessant buzzing in his head. Normalcy, feeling as though one were having the correct sensory experience for a particular situation would be refreshing, like a slap of fresh air. There is anecdotal evidence that Columbus was a social outcast. With all that bedraggle about the earth not being flat, he spoke to his boats as one would speak to a beloved animal, stroking fore and aft the quarter deck. Indians would roll their eyes at him and catch syphilis. Then they would fall overboard. He can relate to owls, those reclusive creatures, heard but seldom seen, their plaintive hooting traveling desolate expanses and giving little clue as to their origin. His presence in any group possesses that peripheral aspect of a distant sound whose location has been lost among the tree lines and canyon walls. At times he is looked at, yet remains unseen. He is a freckled owl in the dark corner of an old barn, but owls seem happy with their diurnal anonymity. They have much to teach him. He knows the owls like him when they peck at him when they take sandwiches. They peck and tear skin from his hand. Still, this is better than standing next to someone in an elevator standing next to someone who is dissecting him, questioning the purpose of his existence with a trite, How do you do? A whip-cracked smile raising welts in the back of his tattered demolion soul. Mixed reveries broken by footsteps in the hall. The mailman arrives. It's mail. Validation of his unfootnoted existence, an ontological breadcrumb tossed, if only by the hands of the phone company. He will take it. A drawn-out, Good morning! rife with sarcasm is what the mailman gives him. No mail for you, the mailman says. This means go to hell for one who can speak the language of the fates. Next, that officious mailman will want to know why Mick is dressed up as a giant owl, or why his apartment is buzzing like the devil's apiary. Screw the mail. It's time for bologna sandwiches. 
And finally, to top off Trifecta 3, we have My Mustache, A Love Story, by Ralph Gamelli. Ralph's work has been published in Weird Tales, Clone Pod, and McSweeney's Online. He's also got a webpage that I've linked to in the show notes. This story was originally published online at Rage Face. I like this one so much I couldn't bear to let anyone else read it. So, hope you enjoy. My Mustache, A Love Story by Ralph Gamelli. My mustache and I were inseparable. We dined at fine restaurants, took leisurely walks in the park, did the crossword together on cozy Sunday afternoons. We were happy. Then I awoke one morning to discover my upper lip completely bare, except for a small square of adhesive notepaper that had been applied to the skin. With dread, I tore it off and read, I'm sorry, we've grown apart, be well. I went to work in a daze, feeling so terribly alone, so terribly exposed. I covered my naked lip in shame and mumbled greetings to my co-workers. Ducking into my office, I locked the door and looked for a black felt-tip pen. Later, when I emerged sporting an ink-stained lip, the others eyed me strangely. You look different somehow, they said. Have you lost weight? I could continue the charade no longer. I wiped the facsimile from my face and told them the whole sad story. They were supportive and sympathetic. You can always grow another one, they said. There are plenty more fish in the sea. <laughs> no, it's, it's too soon, I said. Weeks later, I was still depressed, and one day after work, my office friends attempted to liven my spirits by dragging me to a nearby bar. I awoke in my bed the next morning with a splitting headache, remembering little about the night before. I stumbled into the bathroom, splashing some water on my face, and was completely unprepared for what I saw in the mirror. A blonde mustache. <laughs> my hair is a very deep brown, and it was instantly clear to both of us that, however it was that we ended up together, we had made a glaring mistake. I fixed breakfast, and we made awkward small talk at the table, but it slipped out the door while I was reading the financial page, and I pretended not to notice. My friends teased me about it, and I played along with them, yet I was more depressed than ever. I decided that what I really needed was a diversion. My mustache and I had been regular theater-goers, and I hadn't caught a show since the separation. So then, during the intermission, I ran into my mustache in the lobby. <laughs> it was on the face of a man at least ten years younger than me. They were all wrong for each other. The man's hair was a shade of brown that at first glance appeared an acceptable match for my darker mustache, but with a sustained look the contrast became apparent. Even more obvious was the fact that my mustache was too large for the man's thinner features, overwhelming them. It had fit me perfectly, 
its exquisite proportions and delicate curves seamlessly matching the contours of my face. Even its shade of near black had been indistinguishable from that of my hair. The man was studying a landscape on the lobby wall and didn't even notice me, but I nodded for the benefit of my mustache. The upper lip twitch that followed could have merely been a result of the man's perusal of the painting, but I knew what it was. A recrimination for all my failings. You see, in the beginning, my mustache had been my entire world. I'd constantly stroked it with pride. Then I would only do so when deep in thought. Finally, at the end, I barely knew it was there, not even bothering to brush the crumbs from it after eating. I noticed now that my mustache had been recently trimmed, another act of consideration I tended to ignore. I'd taken everything for granted. I didn't bother going back in for the rest of the show. I never saw my mustache again. It took several more weeks before I was ready for another relationship. I knew that it could never be the same, but I resolved to try. I stopped shaving. It wasn't the same. The mustache that grew in was extravagant. I mean, fiery red. It fit my face well, yet it didn't share my conservative character. It didn't enjoy fine dining or the theater or crosswords, but instead preferred roller skating and swimming and karate lessons. Nevertheless, I was determined to make it work. I not only joined in its interests, I dyed my hair a corresponding shade of red and got a shorter, more active-looking haircut. I stroked my new mustache frequently. I trimmed once a week. I bought a special comb and used it every day without fail. I took up twirling, which I had never done before. I even went so far as to buy mustache wax. Things were going well. A deep affection was developing between us. Then, I awoke one morning to discover that my upper lip was completely bare except for a small square of adhesive notepaper that had been applied to the skin. I tore it off and read, I'm sorry, I feel smothered. Be well. I called the office, claiming illness, then walked slowly into the bathroom and picked up the razor. I shaved everything, everywhere. That was six months ago, and I've been utterly hairless since. Eventually, someday, I'll let it grow back. But for now, I just need some time to myself. That was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. This isn't our usual format, but when we get good stories between 500 to 900 words that we just can't pass on, we'll hold on to them till the time is right. Speaking of which, the time seems great to double up on feedback on two past Drabblecast episodes. 
First, we had episode 55, Circes by Damien Walter. I remember waiting in line at the grocery store when our editor Luke called me up on the cell phone and said, dude, we have an awesome submission. It's about this Bulgarian-sounding guy who's looking for work and he ends up washing dishes at this restaurant, but by the end there are pigs everywhere and a butcher holding a meat cleaver yelling at the guy to run for his life. Not everyone was as excited about the story as Luke and I. In fact, most people were profoundly confused by it. The odd thing is that a lot of people still seem to really enjoy it despite that. Camo Blamo said, Quite simply, I really like the story, but I just didn't get it. Mr. Tweedy said, the more I think about the story, the more I like it, because there's a lot of stuff there to think about and roll around in your head, and the writing was really great. If you still don't get Circe's, Damien Walter posted some insights in the forum if you want a spoiler. Next we had 33 Seconds by L.B. Sedlicek. The majority of people reacted to this story with a decided meh. Laura said, I felt like the story ended somewhat abruptly. I expected the oxygen sniffer's death to be some sort of precursor to Johnny's downfall or to start some sort of revolution. The discussion got derailed pretty quick, and Wakela summed that up nicely, saying, I think it's pretty interesting that while the author seemed more interested in sparking a discussion of environmental disaster, the forum seems more interested in the main character's size. If you want to join the discussion and help derail topics, join our forums at www.drabblecast.org. There you can help Mr. Tweedy quell the current out-of-control discussion about wombat rape. Well, that's all for this week. If you enjoy the Drabblecast, consider chucking a donation our way via the PayPal link on our website. We greatly appreciate your support. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it with all the owls and bees that you like. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to shave.